Well, for the past uh, couple of weeks, we have been working our way through a series that I've called Love Inside and Out. It's the title to this section of exhortations that Paul gives to us in Romans chapter 12. I've called it Love Inside and Out because of how Paul in these verses challenges us from both internal attitudes to external actions. He gives us calls in all of those areas. He's dealing with the inside and the outside. He's also dealing with relationships both inside and outside of the church, both with believers and unbelievers. And so this is a comprehensive view for us, comprehensive call to love in so many different ways and in so many different situations with so many different groups of people. And one of the messages that has come through in these verses as we've worked our way through it, is you cannot be selective in how and where you show love. You can't do it only in the good circumstances. You can't do it only with the good people. You show love to all men, to the kind and to the unkind, in all circumstances, at all times. Our experience with the love and mercy of God demands this of us that we demonstrate the same kind of love that we've received, no matter who the person, no matter what the circumstances. This is the key for everything Paul is saying here. It is understanding that everything he's telling us flows out of what he told us in verse 1, that we are doing this in light of the mercy of God, that we're doing this as an exhibition of our own sacrificial laying of ourselves before God. And so he wants us to do this, Not for our own sake, but for the sake of the mercy of God, for the sake of His gospel. Not just because of blessing it might bring in our own life, but because of how it will bless Him. But it isn't only even that. He wants us to love this way, and He wants us to demonstrate this, not only because God is seeing it, but He wants us to do it because the world is watching it. Because he has a a keen awareness that the way that we interact with one another and all the various things that we do together is in constant observation, on constant display before a watching world. That's what you hear coming out in verse 17, particularly when he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That word honorable, kalos, it's the word for beautiful or admirable or good. And and it has, at times, reference to inherent goodness and quality. But when it's talking about something that is visible or displayed on the outside, it's often translated beautiful or attractive, that which is of high value, high standard. And so Paul seems to be referring here to the outward appearance of visibility of what we do before all people. And he says we're to do it in a way that is attractive, that is admirable to all people. Repay no one evil for evil, he says, and do it because we're considering, we're giving attention to, we're thinking of the fact that people are watching us. That just really highlights how throughout the entire New Testament there's this Continual emphasis on the importance of how the world sees our love. How it observes the way that you and the way that I interact with one another. Or, 
the way that we refuse to interact with one another, the way that we don't love one another. You hear it all the way through. Jesus sort of laid the foundation in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, this is going to be the demonstration to them. This is how they're going to know because of this love. Later, he prays for his disciples and even for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is Jesus' prayer, his prayer for you and for me and for every believer, believer to experience this kind of unity, a special kind of oneness, so that the world would believe that Jesus came, that he was sent by the Father, so that, in other words... The world would come to understand something supernatural is at work among His people. You have this call for love and unity among believers in a watching world. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, because here is a demonstration of love that Peter calls for both internally and externally. To one another as believers and to a watching world. 1 Peter chapter 3. And recognize that it is the way, Peter says, that we respond to conflict. That demonstrates to those who would see, that demonstrates the hope and the faith that we have in God. This is what he says, 1 Peter 3 verse 8. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you, and yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So here he's telling us, we need to have this kind of love for one another. We need to have this kind of brotherly love. We need to make sure that we're not repaying evil for evil. We're to love one another. We're to seek peace. We're to pursue peace. We're to do this first with one another and then secondly with the outside world. And don't miss the connection here. You do all of this in the midst of whatever kind of evil you might be facing from from brothers and sisters in Christ or from those on the outside. You do all of this, he says. You respond to this conflict in such a way, in the way that you do, because you have hope in God. 
Because you are trusting that God is not ignoring your problem. You can face all this because you understand that He is sovereign over all of it. This is key for us. This is how we approach all of these issues. Recognizing that we're not the solution to all of our problems. We are not the ultimate one who solves all the dilemmas. We have a hope in God which transcends all of the struggles and trials that we're in, which frees us up from whatever kind of retaliation we might feel like we need to pursue, frees us up from all of that concern, and allows us to pursue the love of Christ the way that we are supposed to. And so over and over again, you hear throughout the Scripture that God's children will be known, not as those who stir up strife, God's children will be known as those who make peace. Or as Peter says it here, pursue peace. There ought to be a demonstration within the church of this kind of love, this kind of peace. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called the children of God. This will be their identifying marker, the fact that we make peace. Galatians 5, this will be one of the fruits of the Spirit in our, in our lives. Love, joy, and peace. Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians chapter 3, he says, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony or perfect peace. 2 Timothy, flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace. He says, do this along with those who call on the name of the Lord and have nothing to do with the ignorant controversies you know that lead to foolish quarrels. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You can hardly go anywhere in the New Testament where you don't hear this resounding theme over and over again that those who are God's children, those who are known as God's children ought to be those who are known as peacemakers. And this is key. That there is a watching world. That we're to act this way so that we're doing what is attractive, what is, what is beautiful, what is honorable in the sight of all men. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, he wrote this. He says, the world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to Him. They read us, he says, a great deal more than they read the Bible. In fact, they see us, whereas they only hear about Christ. Paul knows this. He understands this. And it's no doubt why he places the emphasis that he does so much, particularly in how we love each other in the face of a watching world. In fact, how we love each other even in the worst of circumstances. This is sort of a theme here. Back over in Romans chapter 12, a theme throughout this section, back in verse 14, you remember we looked at last week, bless those who persecute you, 
We very much have to do that sometimes when persecution comes from outside of the church, when those who are despising our faith are treating us disrespectfully because of it. We're called to respond to those situations with blessing, not with cursing. And now, following that up in verse 17, he gives these same kind of admonitions. You see, do not repay evil for evil. Or down in verse 19, do not avenge yourselves. Or there in verse 21, overcome evil with good. He's adamant that we understand all of these things. He's giving these prohibitions over and over again with different emphases so that we understand all of these things. And he's not just talking about the outside world. He's talking about the way we respond to one another. In fact, most of the time when this admonition is given, do not repay evil for evil, it's applied to the church. The assumption is within the church, you're going to face sometimes difficult situations, difficult people, difficult conversations, difficult relationships. And so you hear this, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul says that, as we saw in 1 Peter 3, Peter says that. Because they understand that this is where we put the gospel on display. This is where we demonstrate the love of Christ. This is where we demonstrate peace. They say this because they understand it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it might be more challenging whenever you are facing this kind of thing from what you believe are brothers and sisters. You come into the church, you, you have the idea that this is a safe place. You know, this is a place where I'm not supposed to get hurt. hurt. Churches are supposed to be places where everyone is treated fairly and, and uh, lovingly. But then that reality is confronted, or that idea, I should say, is confronted with the reality of the fact that churches are full of sinners. We say this over and over again, right? Church is not a, 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 a place, a museum to display the saints so much as it is a hospital to help the sinners. One theologian said it like this, the church is kind of like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm outside, we couldn't endure the stink on the inside. It's a little strong, maybe. A little cynical, but, it, you know... Rubs with reality. There will be those in the church who hurt you. They will mistreat you. They will attack you. They might attack your family. They might do it face to face with words, harsh words of criticism. And they might do it indirectly through gossip and slander, speaking evil about you to others. They'll hurt you by avoiding you, by leaving you out of their social circles. All of this is just the reality that we're living still with unredeemed bodies. We're still living with imperfect people. As someone once said, the Christian church is a society of sinners. In fact, it's the only society in the world whose membership is based upon the single qualification that you have to be unworthy to be a part of it. That's true. I mean, we are all here confessing ourselves to be sinners. 
And so the question is not whether or not you will ever be hurt. The question is, what are you going to do when it happens? How are you going to respond when it happens? Because it most certainly will. Are you going to retaliate? Are you going to return evil for evil? Or are you going to be a peacemaker? Well, this is what Paul says to us, beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the exhortations who come to us, you remember, in this whole series of exhortations that we've been looking at for a number of weeks, all of them beginning back in verse 9 with that exhortation, let your love be genuine. And a whole bunch of, of statements that Paul gives to us here, we've been working our way through them, and as we've said, they all flow out of the love and mercy that we have received. They really all demonstrate The life of sacrifice that we have looked at back in verse 2, they all demonstrate what it is to lay ourselves on the altar in worship to God. And we've worked our way through them. They all sort of uh, uh, emanate from that that unhypocritical love. We spent a few weeks looking at this list. Do you remember in verse 9 when he tells us that our love needs to be sincere? It needs to be, as he says in verse 2, discerning. It needs to result in family-like love. We need to be family. We need to be, he says, enthusiastic in our service because of our love. We need to be positive in struggles. We need to be patient in trials. We need to be prayerful during those times. We need to be generous. We need to be welcoming. All of those things that we've worked our way through. He calls us in verse 14 to be a blessing to our enemies. In verse 11, you remember to be sympathetic with those who are going through trials, weeping with them who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And then in verse 16, Paul tells us to live at peace, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, today we come to finish off this list of responses to the love and mercy of God. And Paul drives deeper into this issue of love in the difficult times. How love responds to evil. And the things he says here are applicable no matter where you face the evil, whether it's inside or outside the church. Because the issue, as we'll see, is not the situation, it's not even the person. The issue is your heart. The issue is your heart. Doesn't matter if they're a believer or unbeliever. What really matters is what you are idolizing in your heart. So his first admonition, as we started to touch on already in verses 17 and 18, is that we are to be admirable in the face of evil. We are to be admirable. I don't know how else to say it when he says that we are to do what is honorable, what is beautiful, what is attractive, what is what is admirable in the sight of all when we are facing evil. Not to repay evil with evil, but to do what is honorable, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. 
Well, all this sort of flows right out of what Paul tells us in verse 16, to live in harmony with one another, to lay aside our pride, to not be wise in our own eyes. And then he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Because this, this is really the, the source of the kind of spirit of retaliation. It is pride. It is ego. And so if we're going to reach that place where we're not returning evil for evil, we're going to have to lay aside ourselves. We're going to have to lay aside our exalted ideas. I mean, this is the chief cause of the impulse to repay evil to someone who has treated you ill. It is pride. Your ego's wounded, and you're not going to take it. Someone's hurt you, and you're not going to take it. Something has to be done. You don't like it. You don't appreciate it. You're not about to let it go. And so the reaction from that kind of pride, from that kind of offense, the reaction is retaliation. Well, let's be clear. The reason, the only reason that you retaliate is because of you. Now you might be saying, well, there's no way. You, you have to understand what the other person did. You have to understand what they did to me. You have to understand. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you all the sordid details so that you can understand that my anger is justified. And you just, you just climb into it and you just smear their character all over the place. None of it matters. Because the real reason you're retaliating is you. In fact, look over at James chapter 4. Listen to the words of James. He makes the issue crystal clear. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Where do they come from? In the midst of a... You're in the midst of a quarrel, you're in the midst of a fight. Where did that come from? Well, you say, it's because of him or it's because of her, the other guy. They're, they're the reason that I'm in this fight. It's what they did. That's why I'm in the midst of whatever I'm doing. It's my spouse, it's my husband, it's my brother, it's my sister, whatever it might be. They're the reason. No, it's not. James says it right there. What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There it is. That's why the fight is there. It's not because of them. It's not because of your circumstances. It's not because of whatever happened to you. The reason the fight is there is because of you. Someone treated you ill, that's not new, it happens to people, but the reason you're fighting is not because someone has done you wrong, it's what's in your own heart. There are desires, there are wishes, there are aspirations, there are expectations that haven't been met, something that you exalted there, and so you can't get over it now, and so what's in your heart now causes you to respond the way that you're responding. You don't have your expectation met, someone isn't doing whatever you thought they should do, and so you fight and you quarrel. But if you just get rid of the expectation, if you just get rid of the desire, if you just get rid of the aspiration, 
If you just get rid of all that, then the fight and the quarrel goes away. There's really nothing to fight about anymore. You say, yes, there is, because that person, what they did was wrong. Well, it might be, but if you're willing to set aside your desires, you can be at peace even with the person who did you wrong. The issue is not them, it's you. It's what's in your heart. If you deal with that, there will be peace. You'll stop going around fighting with that person or arguing with that person or treating them harshly or you'll stop you know, going around indirectly, gossiping, slandering, maligning their character. That's why, by the way, there in James, the verse right before chapter 4 describes godly wisdom, the kind of wisdom, he says, which comes down from above. He says, godly wisdom is not primarily demonstrated in the ability to identify and define all the things that everyone else is doing wrong. You want to know what godly wisdom, you want to know how it's first demonstrated? Listen to the way James describes it back in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's the source of quarrels and fights among you? That's where wisdom comes from. That's where true wisdom is found. That's the truly wise person. And that last verse is very interesting to me because James says, you'll notice in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. A harvest of righteousness. Now, I don't know if you think about that, but normally a harvest is what you reap, not what you sow. He's not saying a harvest of righteousness is reaped. He's saying a harvest of righteousness is sown. This harvest, this righteous harvest, he's saying, the only way that you will reap a harvest of lasting righteousness is if you sow the seeds of peace. Another way to say this, it is through the process of making peace that your greatest growth in righteousness will come. It is through the process of making peace that your greatest growth in righteousness will come. That's the only way to see, uh, to reap a bountiful harvest. Why is that? Well, because the Scripture always points out a direct link between your ability to show mercy to others and the mercy that you have received from Christ. There's a direct link from your ability to show mercy toward others and your understanding of how much you have received mercy. 
And so each time someone disappoints you, each time someone hurts you, you have a fresh opportunity, a fresh challenge to reflect again on the mercies of Christ. And it drives you deeper and deeper into that. It drives you closer and closer to Christ. And therefore, it drives you more and more to righteousness. That is why your greatest growth in righteousness comes through facing those challenges. Your greatest growth in righteousness comes through being a peacemaker. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This direct link between your ability to show mercy to others and your understanding of the mercy that you've been given. That's why you hear Paul giving this exhortation in Colossians chapter 3. But then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another... And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. So the question, whenever you are disappointed, when you have a complaint against anyone, the question that really you ought to be asking is not all the things that they might have done wrong. The question you ought to be asking is, how has the Lord forgiven you? Did the Lord say to you, oh yeah, yeah, I'll forgive, but I'm going to make you pay first. Are, are, are you thinking that the Lord has somehow forgiven you, but only after you did whatever so many years of penance were necessary in order to build yourself up to show that you're worthy of that kind of forgiveness? Is your understanding that somehow Christ came to you and says, yeah, yeah, I'll forgive you, but you're going to suffer. I mean, I can't just let you get by with this. I mean, you've got you to pay something. There needs to be some price. Is that how God forgave you? You say, well, God forgave me because I proved myself worthy. Really? Romans chapter 5 says, God demonstrates His love in this, in that while we were still sinners, even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Look, when God forgives, He forgives freely, unconditionally, and completely. And this is the way He taught us to forgive. You remember the the parable He gives us in Matthew chapter 18 about a king who had a servant that owed him 10,000 talents, an insurmountable sum, would have taken him multiple lifetimes to, to, to pay back such a debt. He comes... He falls down, he pleads for mercy from the king, and the king gives him mercy. And then he turns around, the parable says, and he finds another servant, not the king, the servant who was forgiven finds another servant who owes him only a hundred talents, a large sum, something that would have been certainly felt but it was something that was payable. And he takes him by the neck and he begins to choke him and treat him harshly and speak to him harshly and then throws him into prison. And the parable is teaching what an appalling thing it is to claim that you have received mercy from Christ and then to turn around and not even be able to show the same kind of mercy to your brother or your sister, to your husband, to your wife. In fact, the parable ends... With the king 
going out and finding that servant who couldn't forgive his fellow servant and throwing him in prison. And Jesus says, the last verse of the chapter, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So there's a direct link between your understanding of the mercy you have received and your understanding of how you show mercy. That's why your greatest growth in righteousness comes through peacemaking. That's why James says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Another way to say that, if you want to turn it around, when you have an environment of retaliation, it thwarts righteousness. When you have within your heart bitterness, when you have in your heart slander and malice, when you have in your heart the desire, whether directly or indirectly behind someone's back, to get back at someone, when you have that in your heart, it thwarts righteousness. And it hurts the church. That's why J. Adams says, forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian church running smoothly. Paul says the world's watching. We need to do this because this is attractive. This is honorable. This isn't within the capacity of the world to do. But when they see this, they mark it. They know it. And they say that peacemaker must be a child of God. Back over in Romans chapter 12. Paul is saying that as believers, we cannot repay evil for evil. We must respond with Mercy. We must respond with peace. This is what is good. This is what is admirable. This is what is recognized. A peacemaker to be a child of God. This will be recognized as wisdom that comes down from above. And so Paul says in verse 18, you're not repaying evil for evil. He says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. Live peaceably. With all. It may not be possible. Paul recognizes that. There there will be plenty of people who are simply not interested in making peace with you. They don't have any interest in doing it. They're going to walk away from the process. He knows that. He recognizes that. He allows for that. But what he's saying is, don't let the reason be you. Don't let it be you who's unwilling to reconcile. Don't let it be you who walks away. If there's a quarrel and a fight among you, don't let it be you who's clinging to and holding to whatever idol is in your heart, whatever expectation was dashed, whatever kind of of desire was there. Don't let it be you who's withholding the forgiveness and mercy. So far as it depends on you, you're to live at peace. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it there. You'll notice in verse 19, he moves and he goes, he advances this, if we would say it this way. He gives us the reason why we don't take justice into our own hands. And it's because we have faith and trust that God can take care of it. That's what he says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves 
But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it takes us to our next response, if you will, to this love and mercy of God, and that is that we're trustful of God's justice. We're trustful of God's justice. So few Christians get this, and so few of them demonstrate an understanding of this in the midst of conflict. They respond to conflict as if God didn't exist. They respond to conflict as if God was not in control. They respond to conflict as if God wasn't powerful enough to do something about it. And so they have to take it into their own hands and right the situation. In other words, they, the way that they respond to conflict directly reflects how little faith they have in God. You see, you might expect the world to respond to retaliation. Uh, respond to conflict with retaliation. You might expect them to respond in this way because they don't have any uh, uh, hope beyond really themselves. They might, they, they, you know, they might have some limited hope in a, a response from a, a governmental organization, but many times they don't, and so they're taking this into their hand. And what is the result? It is discord. It is division. It is fighting. It is quarreling. All the fruits of the flesh that you see in Galatians chapter five. You expect them to respond that way because they don't have any hope beyond themselves. But Paul's saying we should not be that way because we have faith in God who, at least we say, is watching over us. And so throughout the Bible, this is why you see this admonition to God's people all the way back in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge Against the sons of your people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You don't walk around with this sort of grudge against someone because you trust that God is the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. Of course, our greatest example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth, and yet when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continually entrusted Himself to Him who judges rightly. That was His example for us. Someone treats you wrong, couldn't be more wrong than they treated him. How did he respond? He didn't try to get everything right in his own power, in his own time frame. He just entrusted himself to God. Until we learn to trust this sovereign power and these sovereign purposes of God, we will always feel the need to defend ourselves. We will always feel the need to tear down our brother and sister. We'll always feel the need to attack. You remember Joseph? When his brothers had mistreated him and led him to so many decades of abuse in prison, in a hole in the ground. And yet when he gets his opportunity to repay them, what does he say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He had a robust view of the sovereignty of God. 
he was able to trust God. If those brothers of his needed to pay anything, he was able to trust God with that. So Paul says to us, God will take care of it. He will repay. Leave room, he says, for the wrath of God. ESV says, leave it to the wrath of God. Literally in the Greek, dote topon, to give place. That's the present imperative for you Greek students of didomai. Dote, dote topon, give place to the wrath of God. We don't want to do that. We don't want to wait for that. We don't want to make room in our schedule, in our calendar for all the things to be worked out by God. We want it now. And so Paul says, you'll have to trust God for that. You say, well, how long is it going to take? I don't know. Well, how's he going to do it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a a physical illness in their life. I, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be bodily affliction, some sort of temporal chastening, whatever kind of negative circumstances. Someone else that God brings in their life to bring them rebuke. I don't know if it's going to be loss of temporal blessing. I don't know how God's going to do it. But the scripture tells us He will. He will not be mocked. Every man reaps what he sows. In fact, if you look down in chapter 13, Paul's going to tell us that God has set up governing authorities. They're His instruments many times to inflict punishments on those who do evil. He's at work. We just have to trust the process for it to work. You need to be mindful. You need to be trusting. If you want to take matters into your own hand, you forfeit the blessing of righteousness and you demonstrate the smallness of your faith. You say, well, I want to make sure God gets them really good. I might want to help him out a little bit. Well, just make sure that when you're, whatever you're hoping for, it's the same standard that you would want God to use with you. Because you wouldn't want to measure with a different measure than you'd measure yourself. It's not our place. It shouldn't be in our hearts. But Paul says, we need to leave room for the wrath of God. You say, okay, I got it. I understand that. I can do that. I I think I can do that. I'll just sit tight. I'll wait for God to take care of them. But in the meantime, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, I'm just just going to let them be. Let God take care of all that. They, They can stay over in their corner of the church. I'll stay over in my corner of the church. Or maybe in some extreme cases, somebody might say, you know, I'll forgive them, but I'm going to run off to some other church because I don't want to see them. Well, you're not really given that option. Because Paul doesn't just stop with non-retaliation. He says the love and the mercy of God in your life ought to move you to actively engage them with benevolence. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil now, excuse me, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Non-retaliation, that's, that's not the final step. It is the active pursuit of their well-being 
that God's love demands. That means you actively seek to do deeds of kindness. Paul quotes here from Proverbs, uh, a proverb, you know, feed your hunger, excuse me, feed your, your enemy if he's hungry. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink and do that. You're heaping burning coals on his head. A lot of discussion about that metaphor and what it means, but it seems obvious it has something to do with shame. It seems obvious it has something to do with with change in his heart. It's the way the Bible uh, presents it. It's the way all the early church fathers understood it. It's the way that the phrase was used outside of the Bible in extra-biblical literature. You heap burning pangs of shame on their head, hopefully bringing them to their senses. That's why probably Paul says in verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You're, you're seeking to overcome their animosity. You're seeking to overcome their hatred. You're seeking to bring them to a place of brokenness. How? By heaping these coals of fire on their head. Overcoming whatever evil intent might be in their heart towards you. You can't really do that if you're not involved with them. You can't really do that if you're avoiding them. You can't really overcome evil with good if you've resolved in your heart to keep them isolated from yourself. You can't show them deeds of kindness if you're always running the other way. And so in order to show kindness, in order to show friendliness, we have to trust that God is going to take care of whatever injustices, whatever wrongs, whatever sins might be there. We have to trust that God's going to take care of that. And we have to trust that God's going to use us in our acts of kindness in that process. They're a child of God. You trust that God loves them, that He'll deal with them as He would any of His children. If they're outside of the church, not one of His children, you have to trust that He'll deal with that in His own way. But whatever the case, you're not going to overcome their evil by getting your pound of flesh. You're not going to overcome their evil by maligning their name, by smearing their character, by broadcasting their sins every place that you can. You're not going to overcome their evil by taking from them, withholding from them whatever kind of blessing that you can. You're going to overcome their evil, he says, by giving, by serving, by blessing. As he says back in verse 14, bless and do not curse. We talked about that last week, what that means. It means praying for them. It means bringing attention to their good traits, to their good characteristics, speaking well of them. Literally, that's what the word means, eulogize somebody, to speak well of them. To give them food, to give them drink, to give them blessing, to give them words of kindness, to give them words of support. Because the world is watching. Because this is beautiful kind of behavior. Becoming of a child of God. And clearly, the kind of wisdom that comes down from above. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, these are challenging, challenging words to us who have so little faith, to us who get so drawn in to 
the malicious slander, to the retaliation, to to the idols and desires that we have in our hearts that we want to protect. It becomes all about us, not about you. It becomes all about us, not about your gospel. So Lord, we just confess now the foolishness of our ways. We confess to you how little we know of the gospel and how little we know of the wisdom that comes down from above. We pray that you would teach us that You would guide us, that You would make us a people who are known by a watching world as peacemakers. That they could see the kind of love that You prayed for, for us to have. That we might be one as You and the Father are one. That they would know that You've been sent by God. Lord, grant us that mercy and that grace that we could be that kind of a people for the sake of your glorious gospel and your name. Amen.